Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Skylines is brought to you by 100 Resilient Cities. Pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities is dedicated to helping cities around the world become more resilient to the physical, social and economic challenges of the growing part of the 21st century. You can find out more at its website, 100resiliencecities.org. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And this week, it's our birthday. I've been doing this a whole year now. You, <laughs> you, you, you came in halfway through, but you've, been, you've done more than half of them. So, you know, it's, it's been a whole year. This is episode 30. There's a, there's a lot of this stuff by now, is what I'm saying. If you, for some strange reason, wanted to listen to the entirety of Skylines back to back, it will keep you going for about... 24 hours and you come out the other end a bit odd we so accept no liability if anyone goes in does don't, don't, don't do, do that it. just don't, don't do, it. do that so john it's our birthday how are we celebrating so you know the way on like anniversary specials of tv shows they get the old cast back yeah you know that's a thing mm. hi barbara how are you i'm good thank you i'm back from the dead you are which, uh, is nice Six months in the ground. How 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 is how are the dead? Yeah, it's pretty good. Different different to here, but best not to think about that now that I'm safely back in the city metric bunker. (laughs) Which which is obviously where we spend all our time. Which is your happy place, I assume. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and assume that you miss us all terribly. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we should talk about your probably your actual happy place. (laughs) My real happy place. Which is um, the. How do you even describe it? What is it? High Street Bakery Chain, Greg's. Yes. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't already know that, John. It almost makes me think you haven't done your research for this segment or to be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the reason we're going to talk about Greg's is, other than, other than the fact that we all clearly have issues, is that you wrote a piece for us a while ago um, with a headline along the lines of what this map of every branch of Greg's in the UK tells us about the High Street. I didn't ask you to do this. I'm not sure anyone asked you to do this. It just appeared one day. No, I definitely framed it as a response to popular demand, whether that was true or not. I found the map for my own purposes and tweeted it. And then people came back with some quite funny and interesting questions. Um, So I decided that it was time for the world to have a long, long piece about Craig's (laughs) and its business model. Um, And so I wrote it. What were the things that surprised you most about the 
distribution of Greg's. <laughs> so there's there's many things, Stephanie. I'm glad you asked. Um, one thing which is probably slightly predictable, which is that there's very, very few branches in Devon and Cornwall, um, which lots of people noticed on Twitter. Um, and Greg's were a bit cagey about answering this. And in fact, all of my questions, because they think they thought I was completely mad. Um, and they kind of didn't really say why. They said they might open some in Devon, but definitely not Cornwall. But the answer is obvious, which is that in the home of the Cornish pasty, Greg's square bakes probably wouldn't go down that well. I think the market's really cornered around there. Just but they... before we move on from that, I would like to know what's better, a Cornish pasty or a Greg's square bake? Oh, Is don't that a joke? Oh, you're going to get her killed? Is that a joke? I mean, I, for me, there's no competition, let's put it that way. A square bake, obviously. It's a perfect shape. Well, I hope you'll love, have a lovely time on your holiday in, uh, in Nuki this year. Yeah, no, I don't intend to go. And there aren't any Greg's there, so it's <laughs> much of a holiday. Um, yeah, another thing that was interesting is that people kept sending me news of something called a second-hand Greg's, um, which is the kind of red Greg's. That sounds horrible. As opposed to the traditional blue, where they sell sort of day-old pastries. Um, but it's less horrible when you know that they do cook everything albeit sometimes from frozen freshly on the greg's premises so a one day old greg's pastry is quite different from a one day old something in a supermarket i just feel like second hand is probably not the best name for that because make, that makes it sound like used <laughs> greg's yes yes pre-loved um, greg's there's like a particularly grim picture i was sent of the second hand greg's in barry in Wales, sort of down the road from the normal Greggs, and it's, it doesn't look like a very cheerful place. But you know, you know we shouldn't judge. I'd, I also have some questions about the idea that everything is freshly cooked from frozen. I mean, that that doesn't—that's not what the word fresh means. Um. Well, it kind of does. I mean, it, that that makes it fresher than something that you baked from bread and then had two days later, because that is the point of freezing food, no? I like the way you're genuinely a little bit offended by that question. Yeah, I'm quite angry, yeah. I mean, well, also, especially because Greg's has recently launched a range of frozen bakes in Iceland, which you can go and buy and make them even fresher in your own home. Can I ask, can I ask a couple of questions? Firstly, I feel like maybe we should row back and explain a little bit of the character of Greg's for our international audience who maybe will not have had the pleasure of going to a Greg's. Um, why why do you love Greg so much? And um, what is Greg's <laughs> apart um, from? <laughs> the reason I think it's really good for anyone, even if they're not me, is that I think there's a problem at the moment where you've got tons and tons of very sort of fancy-ish lunch places um, on the high street, which are like Pret or Itsu, and where you're kind of spending the same as you might on a dinner out for lunch, for hot food, and then you've got horrible supermarket sandwiches, and there's not a lot in between. And I, I went there when I was working in a shop, and you wanted to have something warm for lunch that wasn't going to cost you like your whole day's wages. And it is fresh, John, <laughs> and it's and it's like warm and it's nice and it's not kind of terrible for you. I mean, like people eat past have eaten pasties for lunch for a long time. It's kind of the similar idea, and it's quite kind of comforting. It's not if you're not in the mood for an itsu salmon platter for ten pounds. Instead, you can get delicious meat and cheese in a pastry wrapper for less than two pounds which i guess brings me to my second question which is what is your relationship with greg's now because i know you and the public relations department of greg's have got beef if you'll excuse the pun oh i don't think that's true they're just not as responsive to my status as their number one fan as i would imagine that they would be (laughs) um but 
Well, the, the worst thing actually about my recent departure from the City Metric podcast and secondarily my job um, is that my new job, there isn't a Greg's anywhere because I now work in Kensington. <laughs> so it does look like this was a, a bad career move from that point of view. Um, but I would still go there because also, I mean, the pro- this is a very controversial thing, but they've recently moved into much healthier foods and you can basically get most things you could get in Pret there for about half the price, which I also think is a very good selling point. Uh, so... As I have developed, so has Greg's. Is there such a thing as a Greg's salad? Yes. <laughs> it's just like a normal salad. It's not like it doesn't come in like pastry or something, because that's not, that's not a salad. No, they do normal salads. They do, if, if you've ever been to Pret and seen a very weird thing called a protein pot, which is spinach and a hard-boiled egg, they do those in Greg's, which is quite outrageous copying of Pret, but there oh, you go. I ate those when I was on the, um, the blood sugar diet, where you have to have something ludicrous like, 700 calories a day and that was the only way of not keeling over about 6pm was to eat a couple of hard boiled eggs and some spinach 700 calories is not enough calories a day I think we should take you down to Greg's right now to redress this period of your life I mean the the difficulty is that I do not generally have difficulties that involve consuming too few calories this is not a problem to which I am prone uh, so, so this was this was this was a, ra- a radical departure, and it kind of it worked. It, like, not only did I lose a load of weight really quickly, but actually, when I fell off the diet and started eating crap again, it stayed off for a surprisingly long time. So, it does do something weird to your metabolism. Well, you'll be glad to hear that Greg's also has some bakes now, which are like three hundred calories. That's still, I mean, that's not an insubstantial number of calories. That's not like amazing. For a pastry I mean, based yeah, for meal, something pastry I mean, based. Yeah, you can yeah. get a sandwich for a lot. You could have one of those for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you're still on kind of extreme. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was a really good Maybe suggestion. Maybe this Stephanie. is it. Thank you. <laughs> if any of you do attempt this, please let us know. We'll be happy to chronicle your journey. Yeah, we accept no responsibility for any damage you might do to your health. Doing please, it. please do not follow any of the diets discussed <laughs> in this podcast. Whatever you do. So you you, you pitch this article. You know what does it tell us about the British high street? I think that was probably a trick to, to get me to publish it. But nonetheless, I'm going to ask you, you know, tell, tell me, what did it teach us about British High Street? Well, the biggest fact in this map, which is sort of slightly hidden, is the fact that there are a huge number of Greggs. There's like verging on 2,000 branches of Greggs, which for context, there's about 800 branches of Starbucks in this country. So people really like it. They keep opening and they keep not shutting down again. Um, so the first thing you can learn is that people want that. The thing that I described before about having something that's hot and doesn't feel like it's come out of a packet but isn't really expensive is hugely popular. There are a lot more branches in the north. Um, Northern cities tend to have like 10 in like a very small radius. Uh, And there's just seems to be this huge demand for quite kind of traditional foods done kind of cheaply but fairly well. They are actually a British company. Their kind of ethical stuff is kind of slightly better than you might assume it's just a very straightforward company that has loads of shops and that people really like so where do you think it kind of fits into the sort of socio-economic scale what's the, what's the, what's the profile of, of a greg's like compare it to a pret or a person it's the kind of it's sort of the the normal working person i would say if you're a lawyer you're probably not spending a lot of time in greg's if you work doing kind of phone care for customers you probably go to greg's quite a lot i would say and I think, again, the profile of the cities where it's much bigger. In London, there's actually a relatively small number of Greggs considering the number of people here. Um, so, yeah, it is the northern cities. But it's that thing where you don't want... It's people who didn't want to bring, like, a sad sandwich, but they also don't want to go and blow all their money in prep. 
and they want to have a small, nice treat for themselves. Mm. Prep, we should explain for uh, the international listeners, is it's kind of a slightly posher sandwich shop. Which you, there are preps in the US now, which is kind of yeah, they have been for quite a long time. Yeah, I think it's, it's relatively. It was a British company, but yeah, no, I got quite excited when I was in Washington D.C. last April, and and there was a Pratt, so yeah. I went to and had the same thing I would have had at home because that's the problem with these chains; they get inside your brain. This is the other thing I would say about the the profile of a Greg's customer. I don't think Greg's would do very well abroad. I think it is quite a British thing, and it's almost a sort of school dinners. There's something about it of food that kind of isn't horrible but isn't fancy. And is just kind of quite straightforward and almost quite childish, um, which I think British people really respond to. I associate it with gravy. I don't like. It's Not the same even. kind. Of, I gravy. No, no, but it's, but it's the same <laughs> kind of. It's the yeah. same kind of comfort food. Is yeah, that exactly. Like, and oh. it's like the idea of a steak bake. I think a lot of British people would like, and a lot of people would probably be like that. Just looks horrible. <laughs> like, what <laughs> is that brown mush inside that pastry? Mm. But uh, we love them. So. This has been kind of a growing phenomenon for basically all our lifetimes, but just like all high streets increasingly look exactly the same now. And you can wander around any British town and it feels weirdly familiar because it's the same shops in slightly different order. It's like, you know, the, the way in cartoons, the background repeats. It's kind of like that. So where, where, do we, where do we stand on that? Are we happy with that? It's tricky, yeah. I mean, I suppose the question is whether you think things like Greg's are pushing out like independent sandwich shops, which is possible i think i think the problem is that any chain manages to get lower price points and really good kind of distribution networks set up and once you have that many branches of something you can do it pretty well in all different places but i can see the argument that there's probably less of a space for a kind of a cheap deli or something on a lot of high streets because of a place like this but then i think it's worse that places like pret and itsu and all those other places are pushing out those same places and charging an absolute fortune I think there is sometimes a tendency to it feels sort of risky to go to a go to a completely independent place in a place you don't know because like you don't know what it's going to be like it could be it's probably going to be wonderful a lot of the time but I think there is often kind of an urge to go to the familiar brand where you know what you're going to get and sort of speed and convenience as well like I mean a lot of these places do mark themselves as being very quick and again Greg's is quick and kind of hot food at the same time which is quite a good selling point even places like leon kind of market themselves as healthy but fast food um because they can again the increasingly on high streets what you're actually getting is not necessarily shoppers but people who live and work around the area and kind of want to eat on the go well i think it's time to ask the big question barbara what is your favorite item from greg's my favorite item has always been a chicken bake which again, I think is like the epitome of comfort food. It is completely and totally beige. If anything, it's off-white, <laughs> off-white all the way through. If you've ever had chunky chicken from M&S, it's basically that in pastry. Um, so that is a very nice comfort food. So I sometimes will get the sausage, bean and cheese melt, which is more colourful. <laughs> so it's a bit riskier as a proposition, but they're both great. And you can hold them in your hand and eat them as you walk along, which again, I think is a great... This has turned much feature. more into free advertising than I was expecting. <laughs> well, I kind yeah, of, I, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten how you were genuinely quite sort of crazy about Greg's. Yeah, like, I mean, before like... anybody, I, I am not sponsored by Greg's and Greg's had given me nothing. My colleague gave me a Greg's lip balm that she got sent by Greg's, <laughs> but Greg's didn't, had no interest in sending one to me. So yeah, I'm getting nothing in return for this at all. But yeah, just, there actually, we haven't mentioned a very important feature of our Greg's journey, which is that Stephanie found on Amazon. Ian Gregg, the founder of Gregg's, has wrote a book called Bread, the story of Gregg's, which is a lot harder to say than it sounds. It's quite sweet. Each chapter has like a recipe for a 
kind of a good British cake or bake. And he kind of explains why he thinks it's done. It's still doing as well as it is, which is that perhaps customers identify with a business that still retains old fashioned values that seems local rather than global and doesn't put shareholders before customers and staff. So in, in answer to your earlier point, John, I guess the fact that it's not an international brand might also make people feel a bit better. Can I ask, are there any regional variations in how Greg's runs? I.e., do you have, you know, in Greg's in Yorkshire, you can get different food and they call it a balm in other parts of the country. I'm just I'm just thinking if there are some brands where you kind of go to Scotland and they do sell different food items mm. there or... As far as I know, Greg's has a very kind of narrow and consistent range of products. Um, I think that probably works best for them in terms of scaling up across the country. Um, it might be that there's variations if any of you know of any listeners uh, do let us know but uh, I think that they have a huge kind of research department which goes into just kind of working on fine-tuning a small number of recipes which means there's a guy who's basically his job title is like the director of cake so that's obviously what I'm angling for (laughs) with my long-term interest in this company Um, I I just find I find that very interesting because I think regional food is something that is going to become less and less part of our lives as we kind of move from a generation that has grown up with very homogenized high streets because I remember going to an independent baker's as a child and I don't know how much my brothers and sisters there kind of 10 years younger I don't know how much they would have done that um it's that idea of kind of going this is something which is just cooked and produced in this area I think isn't is that becoming less of a thing I think it is but there's an element of I suppose the, the, the shift is that this idea of kind of British food is still around, but the, maybe the regional thing is disappearing. And the Greg's can market itself as British, but I don't think does see the value in... In bothering. In yeah. bothering. Yeah. But I think you would have Ecclesgates. You'd have... Maybe you just have a bit of everything rather than specialising according to where you were. I mean, I find it interesting slash depressing that there's not really a, a British cuisine in the way there's an Italian one or a French one. Like There's, there's isolated... British or English or Scottish or whatever dishes, but there's not really this kind of whole sort of food system. I don't know. I think that's maybe something of. I don't think it's. A, I don't think it's entirely a myth, and partially just because the food history of Britain is so related to international trade. And um, so we have always, for instance, British food has used spices for much longer than people think it has. You know, spiced meats and spiced vegetables has been around for a long time, but definitely, I think boiling rather than frying. Meat stews and soups are very British. Pastry. Pastry, potatoes. I I suppose what I'm getting at is you're not going to walk into a a, a city almost anywhere in the world and find an English restaurant. That's just not a thing. No, and I I think that is the fact that our food culture has always been relatively global because of the history of colonisation. But actually, I I don't know, I think in America you do, although it's it's selling itself on something. But I think it's also... Because around kind of food status, high status foods and people in Britain have always been fairly international. And I think that the food that you do think of as quite British is kind of thought of as a bit sludgy and working class and a bit Greg's like, really. Like you're not going to go into a restaurant and order a, a pasty, um, although you have tons of convenience stores and stuff really? that would sell that. Yeah, I suppose the ruling classes have always been much more interesting in what they're serving in Versailles. Exactly, French yeah. food is what you'd have yeah. if you were wealthy in Britain. Another thing is that food um, exports best when it is high on complexity and low on ingredient quality. 
and British food is generally not very complex. You won't have like a Mexican mole sauce where there's 90 ingredients in, which is actually relatively easy to export because you can use the dried versions. And what makes it good is the work you put into it. Nobody's going to bother growing turnips in the middle of Japan, which is what that's kind of what you yeah. need to make British food British. Is bubble it? and squeak. <laughs> oh, but bubble and squeak is so good. They must have a version of that everywhere anyway. Yeah, I think in Eastern Europe it's all, <laughs> it's all, all along those lines anyway. Yeah. Um, if Mexican food is so complex, why is it that whatever you order, it tastes the same? It's what I've never understood about. My, I'm going to get letters about that, but this is like it's the. Maybe, it, maybe you should go to like better Mexican restaurants because it's Mexico. <laughs> or like not like that at all. Really. Or like it's yeah, it's completely different. Or like mm. any part of the southern United States. No, I've, I've yeah. I mean, I've been to Mexican restaurants in the states run by actual Mexicans and not like you know Taco Bell. I mean, like you know, good ones, and it's still like feels like the same eight ingredients remixed slightly. But I'm, I'm going to get hate mail for this, aren't I? Oh, no. <laughs> so is your point that if that if they can manage that, then our incredibly limited British diet of like potatoes and meat stews should be more celebrated around the world than it is? So I agree with you. Do you know the theory <laughs> that um, the European colonialism can be credited entirely to the potato? You heard this one? Nope. No. This is I love this nerd stuff. This is in like a book called 1493, the author of which escapes me, uh, but never mind, you can look that up. Um, but yeah, no, basically until the potato arrived in Europe, in Northern Europe, everyone was starving the whole time because it was just really difficult to kind of get enough calories out of like turnip was the previous staple. And the potato suddenly means that you know, people aren't starving to death half the time and therefore it's possible to sort of send people out on ships to, to kick crap out of other countries around the world so. also they stop you getting scurvy because they actually have a huge amount of vitamin c potatoes so to sum up eat potatoes eat, eat more than eggs. 800 calories a day <laughs> and don't be too nice about grace because they'll think you're weird <laughs> i well, live to tell the tale what does the lip balm smell of uh it's a festive bake scented lip balm so it tastes of the herbs which are sprinkled atop the festive bake which i would guess are thyme and rosemary it's actually a very nice lip balm see that's a classic british lip balm yeah exactly (laughs) i only buy and eat british and by that i mean i only buy and eat greg's So there is actually someone else who's been very involved with Skylines from the beginning who you, you probably won't be that aware of. It's uh, our producer, Royful Brown, who, you know, since it's our birthday, it would be nice to get him on as well. So, Royfield. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're kind of a, you're a bit of a mysterious figure on this podcast. You, you produce most episodes, but you've only appeared once pretty briefly. You know what, John? I produce the good ones. You, you produce the best producer, <laughs> certainly. I think we can definitely agree on that one, that you're, you are, you're a better podcast producer than I am. But, but yeah, I think probably what a lot of people listening don't realise, because I've never really talked about it, is that without you, we wouldn't be here at all. Um, it was kind of it was kind of your idea in the first place. Like I'd, I'd considered doing a podcast, but it was only when you kind of came to me and said, I really think there's a gap in the market and I think I can help you do that. That that I actually got my my stuff together to make it happen. So you know, well done. Here we are, a year on. How are you how 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 have you found the last year of Skylines? I what well, dare I say it? I kind of love being a part of it, and I think you slightly overplay my role in all of this because no. um, City Metric was a thing and and a great thing online, and basically it was my inherent utter laziness after saying I was going to write an article about my hometown of Birmingham and then I didn't do it and you said geezer you're actually going to write this article and I went yeah but why don't we do a podcast and you said well I was kind of thinking about doing that uh that you you know that the whole thing kind of came about so it wasn't that it was my idea it's just that you kind of had it in the back of your noggin and and uh and I just was just desperate to to do it really so um, here we are. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, pro- I wouldn't have got it together to do it without a bit of a push from you, I think. So, you know, thank, uh, thank you. Thank you for doing that. But, uh, <laughs> That's all right. I mean, I, I think the first email you ever sent me included the memorable line, I am passionately devoted to the future of Birmingham, which is the article <laughs> that you, you promised to write me and never did. So should we talk about that? I am a proud son of Birmingham and I can bore on about Birmingham because uh, full disclosure I left Birmingham for the first time 1988 when I went away to college I've had two forays back in the early 90s but really I left to go back to London in the mid 1990s there was a period between let's say uh, 1999 and 2004 and I'd go back to Birmingham and there'd be new roads and we're not talking about new roads in uh, the outer skirts of Birmingham we're talking about in the in the city centre and I had always kind of railed against the town planning disaster that is my that is my hometown and um, I'm a committed podcaster and a committed urbanist and I live part of my year in san francisco i I live in london and and whatever and it's hard not to compare and contrast those two major cities with my hometown and um about 18 months ago i I was going to do a podcast which was going to kind of going to be entitled birmingham is crap let's make it better um did some research on on birmingham 
and was actually shocked to discover that as late as the early 1970s, the kind of GDP of Birmingham was actually higher than London. You know, the average the average Brummie was richer than your average Londoner. And that's about, the, I, mean, I, I knew it went in decline, into de- decline much later than the northern cities because of the car industry. I didn't realize it was actually higher than London. And, and when you think about it, places like Wolverhampton, as late as the, 90, the, the mid-1960s, were still richer th- than London. It shows you how bottom-heavy, how London-centric the UK economy has become quite relatively recently, that in after the wave of industrialization, um, you know, your Manchesters, your Birmingham's, your Liverpool's, etc., were independently wealthy. Uh, well, what happened to Birmingham, my hometown, was that um, in the in the 1950s, there was a government diktat that uh, cities were a bad thing. It's a case of rebuilding after the Second World War. And uh, there was a, a deliberate move to depopulate London and and Birmingham because cities were seen as being dank and, and and whatever, and and the car was going to be the future, and because Birmingham was so rich and forward looking and on our city motto it says the word forward, and our and our city and our kind of credo is the city of a thousand trades, we embraced this future the future of the car with with gusto and tore down massive swathes of of the city, depopulated it by a by at least 150,000 deliberately made the city centre much smaller uh, because we didn't want industry to go there. And industry was actually told not to strategic bits of industry, not to locate to Birmingham. So all the way through my childhood, the 70s and, and the 80s, you had a Birmingham which wasn't really historically Birmingham. It was small, inward looking and Though I don't think it ever went into um, absolute decline, Birmingham's growth in terms of population and definitely economically was in relative decline. And then by the early 1980s, the southeast of the UK, specifically London and with the financial sector, just boomed and went straight past Birmingham. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the role of the car industry, because late last year I was in Coventry, which is technically a separate city to Birmingham, but it's kind of in its orbit. It's it's a city of like 400,000 that's also a commuter suburb of Birmingham, really, and which is famous for having had this glorious medieval town centre that was demolished by the the Luftwaffe in the the war, just bombed to hell, except... A guy from the council planning department who I met when I was up there told me that that's actually a bit of a myth. And it was actually Coventry Council that started knocking it all down in the 1930s to build bloody roads because, you know, it was a big car manufacturing town. And they just thought this is the future. It's a bit embarrassing that we've got all these sort of narrow medieval winding streets. What we really want is a big four lane highways for the centre. Birmingham was, was very similar. I was always told growing up that Birmingham city centre was also bombed but 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 it wasn't you know of course there was some bombing but no we didn't have an, an iconic cathedral to bomb and then just leave a husk of a shell of it like like Coventry but it was exactly the same the, the same thing that's basically ha- happened in Birmingham that because we were so forward-looking and you could completely understand it you know they are trying to the city council are trying to get rid of slums in places like Lee Bank which were right in in the city centre which the program Peaky Blinders 
uh, it was kind of really kind of set uh, in kind of lead bank and also kind of kind of small who so they're trying to clear all these uh, slums um they've got the excuse of a little bit of war damage but also with just this really bullish city so they said well the car is the future and then they looked to america and said well you know this is this is the future let this go copy that but it wasn't just that that happened it was a case of strategically industry was discouraged from actually going there and and just to kind of understand how rich economically and diverse birmingham was is to to kind of to understand that birmingham is going to be majority minority city in that there are more people more people of black and brown skin than there are white people and the reason why that happened is because the immigrants came in in the 50s and 60s because there were so many jobs in birmingham birmingham was so rich you know so it kind of shows that kind of knock-on effect but anyway by the late 1980s, the city council kind of realised that uh, the city centre was absolutely a disaster and looks like a scale electric racing track with uh, literally motorways bisecting it and, and a, a, a motorway uh, ring road around the city centre, which was restricting the city core actually from growing. The first thing that, that they kind of did was to build the convention centre and then to upscale Broad Street, which is this main arterial route into the city, which was a dusty kind of no man's land, which is full of kind of furniture shops, uh, kind of semi run down. And within literally 18 months to two years, it became the entertainment highway into the city of Birmingham, connecting the city core to the kind of prosperous west of Birmingham, kind of Hagley Road. And it happened so fast. I honestly didn't realise that was a recent thing because, you know, I just know Broad Street as kind of the entertainment district. I didn't no, no, no. That, a, that a is policy. early 1990s. And one of the one of the things that the city city council did, which was which was very good to help put Broad Street on the map, was it got Ronnie Scott's to to open up uh, a second Ronnie Scott's. So obviously, Ronnie Scott's is a famous kind of jazz club in Soho to open up a branch actually on Broad Street and subsidised it massively for at least 10 years. And then it finally did close down by, by 2000. But it worked. And then off the back of that, there was a Brindley Place uh, redevelopment and then the canals were more massively cleaned up. But this is just 20 odd years you know the council did that right but strategically where they've gone wrong it's always kind of what i call kind of top-down development so you have on on broad street you have uh, the most expensive library in western europe and we can't afford books for it architecturally it's deliberately supposed to be uh, controversial the council spent so much money on this building. Then we have the National Indoor Arena where gladiators used to happen. Uh, we have the International Convention Centre. You know when a town is fundamentally small, when it needs to rename everything as international. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's what we have, you know, in Birmingham. You know, it's this, the second biggest city in the UK and the second biggest by, by some way. But we still suffer from this mentality that we have to tell people how, how big Birmingham is. But the, the development is always, as I said, kind of top down, led by the council, as opposed to them uh, rezoning areas and let, letting in um, smaller developers, um, smaller retailers actually come in and to create a unique kind of character. 
for the city centre and ring roads are being knocked down and be made smaller so that the city actually works on a pedestrian level. The one thing that everybody notices about going to Birmingham for the first time is that you can't easily walk the city. There, there are lots of things happening in Birmingham, but you cannot, for the life of you, give anybody directions of how to get from one area of the city centre to another. And it's something which the city council only in, I think, about the last two years have actually really become aware of and to know that if you have if you want a pedestrian city, you want a city that lives and breathes on on a foot level, people need to be able to, to kind of navigate that. And I was kind of blown away by the plans for basically Digbeth and Southside. All the things which I've always said is that all these developments um, are always kind of top down. It's a case of let's build the biggest skyscraper, let's build the biggest indoor shopping centre, all these things which we, which we have in Birmingham. They've actually kind of turned that completely on its head. And down by Digbeth, which is the industrial bit of the city centre, which kind of a abuts the uh the bullring shopping center it's a, a whole a, a whole sea of kind of semi-used kind of factory spaces that it's absolutely ripe for redevelopment but, but small organic redevelopment you know what you don't want is a big developer coming in saying well we're going to knock down three blocks of this and then build a, a great big new shopping center and because of hs2 the high-speed rail link, which is supposed to come from London to Birmingham. The old Curzon Street train station is going to be reopened, and that hasn't been opened since uh, the early 1900s. They're going to physically move the, the shopping centre core of Birmingham south by about a quarter of a mile, make uh, one of the large roads into the city centre much smaller. Instead of it being a four-lane highway, it's going to be two, two lanes, so it's going to be pedestrian-friendly, create a clear line of sight so you can actually see the rotunda as a pedestrian when you come out of the train station but then they're just encouraging small-scale organic development in all of these old kind of factory fronted businesses which is it, so it's kind of like if you imagine london it's going to be a little bit like shoreditch abutted next to oxford street and and that's just incredibly exciting there's a disused aqueduct which runs through uh digbeth and they're going to do a skyline so what you have in, in new york so you'll be able to walk along that and actually have great commanding views of, of the city center and i i saw these these plans john and i was actually bowled over that uh we have a, a city council who for the first time in uh 50 years are actually doing all the right things in terms of city's development, making the city human again, and actually really putting Birmingham back to where it was, which is actually one of the the quietly most vibrant bits actually of, of the UK. Before we go, there are there are two annoying questions I want to ask you. One is, if Birmingham's so great, then why is it that Manchester's the city that gets all the attention? Our industrial history is much more complicated. Number one, we're physically slightly too close to London. We're not quite far enough away. The identity of the North, whether it's Yorkshire or Lancashire, is much more imprinted onto this history of industrial Britain in a way that the Midlands isn't. Birmingham really came into its prime in the late 19th century. So we're not really associated with uh, mill owners, 
etc in the way that kind of manchester and and yorkshire is and and also our industrial diversity actually was our strength we weren't a one-trick pony we're not liverpool the docks we're not manchester mills we actually built cars we had petro chemical industries we had jewelry we had guns i think something like half of the guns for the american civil war were actually created in the city of birmingham we had a gun quarter a jewelry quarter we had all these different quarters it's so it's hard for people to pin a specific kind of manufacturing industry to the city of birmingham and 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 we managed to kind of like then be this beating heart of the UK, but without an easily recognisable industry to, to pin us on. You know, Newcastle would have been coal. You know, we, we didn't have that. We did everything in Birmingham. So, so that, in a nutshell, is the reason. The other question I have is, um, if it's so great, when are you going to move back? <laughs> I'm, I'm having a wobble. I'm, I'm having a wobble. I just think that, you know, sod's law my luck but i managed to be born in and have my uh and, and grow up in the time when birmingham actually wasn't great if i'd been born 20 years beforehand i actually would have seen an, an amazing city center an amazingly vibrant forward-looking city and when i look and when i go to birmingham now i i you, you can absolutely see the resurgence of birmingham so I just have to be born and brought up in, in the wrong times. But, you know, never say never. I'm sure your mother will be delighted to hear that. <laughs> so because John's idea of how we should celebrate the podcast is do more podcasts, we also... It's <laughs> my Ribena berry noise, though. <laughs> Um, nobody outside a very certain age range from Britain is going to get that joke. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Did I tell you I went to college with a Milky Bar kid, by the way? No, you didn't. No, he went mad. I mean, he went mad? He, was, he turned out to be quite weird. Yeah, he went mad and disappeared. Do you think... Wait, disappeared? What? Oh, and the reason that's attached in my mind is because um, I think he was also the noise of the Ribena berry that goes, woo, um... This is not helping us celebrate our birthday. We should, um, anyway. No, but these are all questions I'm going to ask you after recording. And I think okay. if, you, if you want to know the story, you should tweet at John and he should have to tell it to us all. Um, but because, you know, we sort of need other ways to celebrate except for recording podcasts, which we're going to keep doing anyway. So it's not so much a celebration as just a continuation. It's about my pathetic need for public adoration is what it really is. And that's at John Ellidge on Twitter, guys. Um, we thought we'd ask you guys what we should do for our first birthday. So, yeah, we asked, how shall we mark this momentous anniversary? Simon Alvey, in what is pretty transparent, suggested that we send each of the listeners some cake and a balloon. He just wants cake. Not... See, Alex Ingram also went down the cake route, but he thinks we should make a map of cakes. So I'm guessing that is where different cakes are from. That sounds quite cool. I mean, I don't know what he's talking about there, to be honest. I mean, like, it's just maps and cakes. But then, it, well, I asked, shouldn't we do like a cake in the shape of a map? And then he said, a cake that is a map of cakes, which sounds incredible, but also more work than either of us are. You know, on City Metrics first birthday, like the website rather than the podcast, because, you know, I've been doing this self-indulgent stuff for a while now, but someone, when they tweeted that it was our first birthday at the website, someone 
superimposed a piece of cake onto a map of London to see what it would look like because that was a thing I was doing a lot of at the time was like here's here's a map of Paris on top of a map of London and like someone did it with cake you probably had to be there to be honest how how big was the cake wouldn't it just be really small and you couldn't it was about four miles wide right okay it was I mean at the scale at that scale yeah Okay, because like if you just superimpose a picture of a cake on a map of London, it's just an arrow pointing that goes, "Cake is here." Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it was it was a giant. It was piece a very of, big, it was cake. A big piece. Okay, of cake. I feel like it should have opened with that. Should we get back to the tweets? <laughs> we should because there's a great one from at Angry Sai, um, perennial funny person of the internet, who says, "Make John apologise to the nun." This is a brilliant, very important callback. She's been really angry about that story about me and the nun. <laughs> she's tweeted about this a lot. I mean, she's, she's from a Catholic country, so I think it offended. I, 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 I asked for forgiveness for you at Mass on Sunday. Your, your boyfriend suggests we do a special episode of the Battle of Stalingrad, which I, I think he might be comparing me to Mark Corrigan from Peep Show there, so I'm a bit offended. He, I don't watch Peep Show, but he definitely does make Peep Show references that I don't understand, so I mean, he may I well think, be. I think he's calling me a nerd is what's going on. Connor, do, Connor is calling me a nerd. I don't think he would call you a nerd. I think that's what's happening. Wait, are you calling him a nerd? A bit of a nerd. He's not a nerd. Different kind of nerd. What's he a nerd about? We'll talk about this later. We definitely will. Ah, another suggestion from Angry Sai, who has picked up on another way in which you are a nerd. Get special guest Daniel Hannon on... Dressed as a nerd. We're not getting Daniel Hannon dressed as a nerd. We're not allowing Daniel. I'm not. Daniel Hannon. I think he probably wouldn't be in the same room as me. Daniel Hannon, but it's a nun. Oh, right. I didn't didn't get the pun there. So it's the Daniel Hannon pun. Daniel Hannon. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Daniel Hannon, but he's dressed as a nun. Your two greatest fears come together as one. Sorry, that rhymed. Jack Thompson suggests that we travel from one end of the UK to the other using only local... That's quite that's quite a sensible suggestion, but it's quite a boring one that I slightly regret reading out. So very good idea, Jack, but try and be funny next time. I would like to do that, but I don't think we have either the time or, or the money. Resources. And also local transport is very bad in the UK. I think that's what he's getting at. I think it's like the gonzo <laughs> piece. Village Metric, a whole episode based on tiny parish issues, like the funding for new park benches by Rob... Fuller. I actually like this because we have a campaign at the moment in New Cross to keep the post office open and I am have a lot of feelings about it. Are you saying that you want to abuse the, your city metric podium to argue to keep the... Yep, I'm just going to bring a load of nimbyism to city metric. Um, um, Anne Siegfried Refsen, who is in Trondheim, Norway, it's always nice to hear from the international contingent, suggests that we should celebrate by me walking through all of London. Oh, wait. So I am being trolled by people in Norway now. Like, this is the thing about social media, is there are people in completely different countries who know enough about me that they feel it's okay to be to randomly troll my leisure habits. To be fair, John, being a person who is trolled is part of your online identity. I mean, that is true. And yeah. You have made your at mentions bed, and now yeah. you have to lie in it. One quite popular suggestion was that we do a drunk episode. We could do a drunk episode. We could do a drunk episode where we just start drinking and see how it goes. Another suggestion from Sarah, who's at Sarah underscore skis, is to do a musical episode. So maybe we could combine these and drink for so long it becomes a musical episode. Stop us before we sing again. See you next week.
catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.